is Jane Sigford, convener of the podcast Views and Voice Above the Noise, which is hosted by MASA, Minnesota Association of School Administrators. For this podcast, I interviewed Rob Reitz, principal of Chippewa Middle School in Moundsview, Minnesota. Why, you ask, did I interview a principal when this podcast series is geared towards superintendents and central office personnel? Well, recently, there's been a lot of discussion about an interest in project-based learning as a way to engage all students and change how we deliver instruction. Project-based learning is inherently personalized, honoring the differences in the way the students learn. In addition, it relies upon problem-based instruction and learning, which is something critics say is missing from our public education. Therefore, recently, I have visited some charter schools in our area who focus on project-based learning. I wanted to see if what they were doing and if the success they were having could be delivered in a bigger local school district. It can. It's happening in Chippewa Middle School in the Moundsville School District, and the building is led by Rob Reitz, principal. Rob Reitz has been a teacher in the Moundsville District at Irondale High School and has worked in other capacities in the district, including providing professional development. He's earned his administrative license and is now the principal of Chippewa Middle School. Chippewa, serving over a thousand students, is one of three middle schools in the district. Roughly 15% of the students are eligible for free or reduced lunch. Around 30% are students of color. As described on Chippewa's webpage, every student maintains an online I Create portfolio providing evidence of key learner qualities, effective collaboration, reflection, sustained engagement, self-advocacy, flexible thinking, and exploration. And those words are what create the name and acronym I Create. Chippewa incorporates STEAM philosophy, which provides many problem-based interdisciplinary and hands-on learning experiences. Through a design, engineering, and or art focus, students draft and create 2D and 3D products in Corel Draw and Autodesk Inventor. All students learn and apply the process of design thinking to solve problems and create desirable products. Together with his staff, Rob has created a school where true individualized learning occurs. It is not just putting students on a computer to go at their own pace online. Middle school students are producing analytical projects where they decide upon an issue. They have to complete research, analyze real data, write written reports, and give presentations on their findings. For example, that I observed and talked to students about was that one of the topics was whether or not spending time on watching a screen impacts sleep, like the media says it does. This was a real-life project where students had to analyze real news, or what is now in our paper called fake news. There's also a fab lab at Chippewa where students complete instruction and projects at their own level and pace. No two students are doing exactly the same thing. The projects are in varying degrees of difficulty depending on the skills of the student. The teacher becomes a mentor, a facilitator, and a guide, and has made all of the videos that the students utilize. But the role of the teacher has really changed. The classroom is busy, noisy, and fun to see. There are many other examples that are happening at Chippewa Middle School, and it's all very exciting and engaging. Undergirding all of the adventures in learning at Chippewa is the question, 
How does what we are doing meet the needs of all students, including students of color, students who live in poverty, and the students who are very gifted? Staff are constantly examining what do students have to learn and how can I engage them to do that? Robin and his staff have created the mantra or vision for the school that is written on technologically savvy posters that will talk to you if you have an app on your phone. On those posters, students describe how they have demonstrated a part of the acronym I create. This slogan is not just on the walls or on posters. It's manifested in the daily activities and learning of each classroom. Rob and his staff have an excitement and commitment that is contagious to each other and to students and to the parents in that school. The enthusiasm is apparent when one visits. Through hard work and what they've learned, there are messages to all of us about the thrill of learning and teaching in new ways that change is possible and is rewarding. Rob and his staff have successes and ideas that deserve being shared across our state. So here goes. And here's a spoiler alert. Rob uses a lot of catchphrases or sound bites that succinctly relay a message that all can understand. Some may call this a hashtag approach. Others may call it clever. Either way, the messages are powerful, memorable, and inspirational. To get more out of the interview, I will share some of Rob's phrases ahead of time. You will listen and hear them be explained more completely in the podcast. He says he feels like a broken record because he uses phrases repeatedly and often, but what that means is that his teachers and students know what he believes and what he stands for. They know the mission of Chippewa Middle School. Here are some of the catchphrases. Learning possibility leads to speaking possibility. He believes his job is to remove roadblocks and create pathways for change. As principal, he is the main driver of change. As that driver, a function of his is to give autonomy and voice. When hiring, he looks for people who will fit and add to the culture of Chippewa, which means that candidates must show that they are, quote, hungry, humble, and smart. He explains this further in the podcast. He believes that in order to learn, teachers and students alike, the environment must be low risk and high reward. To be a leader and a listener, one must exhibit and practice mature empathy, which is also explained in the podcast. There's different types of data at Chippewa, and they have different labels and functions. He has and uses satellite data, which is standardized test scores. Another one is distant data, road sign data, and street-level data, which is the real day-to-day -day observable behaviors and learning attempts. Again, these are explained more in the podcast. He says a leader must exhibit care before candor. The mantra for teachers at Chippewa is to, quote, be the spark. In other words, ignite the passion for learning. When making decisions, avoid hurry and harm. We often use technical solutions to complex problems. There are some pieces of education that are fixed and some can be flexed. In discussions, it's helpful to know which it is. They have a skinny plan instead of a strategic plan because they focused on just a few learning goals. As a leader, he has to remember that he is in charge, but not in control. And he uses the acronym SCARF, which will be explained later. When looking at issues, he reminds himself, are you trying to be a workhorse or a show horse? In our interview, you will hear Rob quote from many resources because he is also a learning leader. You will hear how he uses his resources. 
He reads constantly, but he doesn't take books at their face value. He takes nuggets from a book to import it into his setting in a way that meets the culture of the Moundsview District. Here are some of the resources that he will reference. The Listening Leader by Shane Safir, The Ideal Team Player and the Five Temptations of a CEO by Patrick Lencioni, Leadership and the New Science by Margaret Wheatley, Culturally Responsive Teacher and the Brain, Promoting Authentic Engagement and Rigor Among Culturally and Linguistically Diverse Students by Zaretta Hammond. Those are just to name a few that he refers to. So now let's hear from Rob and listen to what his vision and his passion was and how superintendents can hire and look for more leaders just like him. They need to hire instructional leaders. I felt from the very first day I was in a classroom as a teacher that I needed to change how kids experienced learning. I was teaching kids who weren't successful and struggled, not because they couldn't do it, but because the way we do school doesn't work for every kid. And we can significantly change how kids experience learning and engage them and excite them, ignite them, find their passions. And we can do that in one classroom or we can do that in every classroom. So my goal when I became, when I even started pursuing an administrative license was I'm going to change how kids experience learning. And it continues to be my goal. It has an equity lens to it because for a lot of students, the, the, the ones we're trying to change how they experience learning are the ones that we know we can predict are not going to be successful. So it starts with a desire to do things differently. It requires a lot of reading. It does. My efficacy has increased because I continue to read and learn possibility. And when you are reading and learning about possibility, you will inevitably speak possibility. And that's really what superintendents need to look for, in addition to some other key qualities in principles. Someone that can come in and speak possibility and that understands their role is to then remove roadblocks that allow the teachers in their building to operate with autonomy and to be the ones that come up with the pathways for change. They have to be a main driver. The people that are responsible for implementing change have to be a main driver in what that change looks like. And when you give them that autonomy, that voice, and you remove roadblocks, they will respond in ways that change things. The truth for me is sometimes you have to let a not so great idea play out. I struggled with that. I wanted only the best ideas. But the truth is the learning that comes from implementing an idea that's good will end up becoming something that's great because our teachers are learners. They look at a situation, they learn from it, and they improve what they're doing. I think on the whole, that's what teachers do. That's why they got into this to begin with. We all know that hiring the right people is one of the most important decisions and actions that an administrator can take. Here is what Rob looks for in the teachers that he hires. Well, I really look for three key qualities in anybody that I hire. Um, and it comes from Patrick Lencioni, who's the ideal team player. Hungry, humble, smart. I think most leaders are hungry, humble, smart. And I think the characteristics of great leaders are the same characteristics for great teachers. They want to listen. They are curious. They ask a lot of questions questions. They connect with people. They understand the importance of relationships. But if you are hungry, it's not just to increase 
students learning. It's to increase your own learning, too, about how best to reach kids. If you're humble, you get that this job is hard and you're going to make mistakes. I think we need to create a low-risk, high-reward environment in our schools where teachers can feel okay with taking risks and making mistakes because we work with human beings. Kids and families are unique. They're dynamic. We have to think differently. We have to think on our feet. We have to try different things in order to meet the needs of each and every student that we teach. And so they have to be humble enough to admit when they tried something and it didn't work. And they have to be humble enough to try something new and to take the time necessary in order to do that. We all are working way too quickly to make this happen for for every kid. And then smart is not intelligence. That obviously helps, but smart is the EQ. It's the emotional intelligence. It's understanding what to do when a student's crying. It's, It's understanding that you really have to ask questions about how they're experiencing something in your class. What is it like to be taught by me? I ask all the time, what is it like to be led by me? That's feedback that we need so that we can understand the experience someone else has in the interactions we're having with them so that we can improve what we do. I've learned so much about what I need to improve by simply asking questions and listening to the people that I work with. From teachers, students, and parents, all three can give us feedback as leaders. And for superintendents, feedback from principals. Do they know what it's like to be led by them? Have they asked questions of their principals at times in which you're going over goals and talking about um, how the year went? That's a critical time to get feedback for yourself on what it's like to be led by you such that you might make some changes in what you do or, or start focusing on how many questions do I ask in a meeting? Have I ever tallied it? Am I talking more than I'm asking, right? I always, especially in um, IEP meetings, I tally the number of questions that are asked in the meeting, both by me and by others that are working with me so that we know we're eliciting the kind of input we know we need from parents in order to meet the needs of that Do people know you're doing that? Uh, Most of the special education department does know that, yes, because we we break down the meeting afterward and we talk about it. Why aren't we getting more input from parents. Why are we doing most of the talking when they know their child so much better than we do, especially early on in their experience here? So Rob, what did you have to change? Absolute first thing I stressed is we've got to stop looking at standardized test data as the end-all be-all measure of our effectiveness. And then we needed to act in ways that showed that we were going to do that. We can have goals that use data generated from standardized tests as one of our measures. But if we solely rely on that, it is telling so little of the actual story of how kids experience learning in our schools that we are missing a ton of really good and important and informative stuff. What we did and what I love about Shane Safir and the listening leader, call it something different. She calls it satellite data. It really shows the distance that that data has from the everyday work that's going on in classrooms. And if you look at it in terms of data being able to tell a story, satellite data or standardized test data, it it sort of provides the mood or the tone for the story, but it leaves out all of the plot. It really gives you no hard evidence of what actually is taking place, and it doesn't really inform to the degree necessary what actually we need to change in order to have a greater impact on student learning. Do you tell your teachers all this? All the time. 
I feel like I'm a broken record. What I love about the Listening Leader book, and I don't want it to just become about that, but it's a really great read, is it gives some names to things that change the narrative just enough that we can stop talking about um, uh, standardized test data and just refer to it as satellite data and make sure that there's understanding. It's distant data. It's a one-time measure at the end of a school year, distantly measuring the degree to which we are successful in classrooms. It's important, but nowhere near as important as roadmap data, which for us is common formative and common summative assessment. And the degree to which we're able to shift kids' learning when they struggle on the formative and we're successful on the summative, that builds efficacy for teachers because it's directly aligned to what you taught. It's directly aligned to an assessment that you created, and it was done collaboratively with other experts, your colleagues right down the hall. For us, that is how we study our impact and know whether or not we are operating with efficacy. We are increasing our belief in our ability to cause learning for kids. The most important piece, though, and Shane Safir calls this street-level data, and this is now where we are positioning ourselves to learn so much more about how kids experience learning here. It's using observation. It's using focus groups surveys. It's questioning how are you experiencing what we are doing and it's looking for themes in how students or parents or teachers respond to the questions that we're asking. And we can then formulate a plan target specific complex changes that can be improved because we've got that street level data and we can start even just with classroom walkthroughs looking to see if the Themes that played out in the conversations and dialogue we've had continue to be status quo, or are they changing based on the professional development, based on the reading, based on the dialogue and the discussions that we're having? That's where complex change is going to happen in schools. That's where we're going to be more transformative. If we only look at satellite data and we make staffing decisions or decisions about the level or degree of a teacher's effectiveness based on these distant scores that aren't specific aligned to how the teacher taught, what the teacher taught, we're making a huge mistake. It's, that is a high-risk environment that teachers cannot operate in with the kind of autonomy that they need in order to be successful. Low-risk, high-reward environment. What's the role of feedback to create this environment of low-risk, high-reward? Things that I think superintendents could help principals do. They can do this and model it. For every critical piece of feedback we offer someone, we should already have given five pieces of validation. There needs to be a ratio, five to one, validating the work that principals and teachers are doing versus being critical. Because we need, right, brain research says, when you get critical feedback, you can slip very quickly into fight or flight mode. They need to hear it. If they don't feel validated, if we haven't built the kind of vulnerability-based trust necessary, they won't hear the feedback that's necessary for them to improve. It's, it's critical that the relationships are there and that the validation is there first. Care before candor in order for the kind of feedback that is actionable and influences complex change to actually be meaningful.
What do you see as some of the issues in the way that we deal with problems currently in our school system? Part of this is slowing down. We move way too fast in education. We care so much about the hurry and not enough about the harm that's brought by that hurry, right? Whether it's prioritizing standards and really focusing and, and ensuring kids are learning the things that we find are most important within a particular unit or a superintendent that's got all of these other significant things things happening, we rush oftentimes and apply technical solutions to complex problems. And technical solutions result in status quo. They just do. A really good example from a, from a building perspective is looking at a um, looking at satellite data and, and making the determination that a, a math team is uh, ineffective. So we assign them a coach. We, we, we do this very technical thing. We assign them a coach and coaches come in and effective coaches do have, do make a difference, right? But they're making the difference pedagogically when the problem might be specific to this, the, the teacher and the students that are in the classroom. We see all the time with street level data that students of color who are struggling in a math class the teacher will hold their hand, will carry the cognitive load, will do step-by-step -step directions for students of color that they don't do for other students because the presumption is, and it's a subconscious bias, these students get it, these students don't. And so over time, a pattern develops, a narrative develops for, for some students of color in our schools that I'm less than. You know, it's that idea that stereotype threat is reinforced just by the way we operate subconsciously. That's not something a coach is going to change. It's not something a coach is necessarily going to even know about because they're focused on on the pedagogical changes that need to take place for the teacher. And we're saying it's so much more complex than that. What do you see is the role of strategic plans? Strategic plans, if you look at them closely, yes. are a list of technical solutions to complex problems. And, and I think Shane Safir definitely shows in her book that you maintain status quo when you only apply technical solutions to complex problems. I like the idea of a skinny plan. I think we can have our overall school improvement plan as it exists right now, but only if we also have a skinny plan that specifically targets at the street level improvements that we're going to make and, and you know, studying the effectiveness of those improvements as we're making them throughout the year. That, to me, is going to narrow our focus, and it's going to reduce this idea that we have to have 10 or 12 initiatives every year in order to, to have a robust school improvement plan. You ask a question about overwhelming. That is overwhelming. I think the hardest thing I've noticed for uh, any district leaders is what leaves the system. What is your no longer going to do list? What does it look like? Very infrequently do we say we're going to pursue this initiative, but before we do that, we're going to look at what we're no longer doing in order to fit it in. And there are some, some good things that are not great things that should be on that no longer do list. Can you think of an example? Focusing on standardized assessment data, spending time making instructional decisions based on satellite data, that should be no longer on our to-do list, right? And in place of that, having counselors or deans in schools have frequent student focus meetings where they're actually sitting down to listen to how students are experiencing math in our school. 
Much of what you do and are describing is how you manage complex change. How do you do that? Well, the first I think I need to look within. Change does not happen if I'm not reflective and humble about how I'm leading a, a building or a district. So for me, uh, a major realization is I'm in charge, but I'm not in control. It's when I take too much control that I limit the amount of change that can take place because people aren't going to do things just because I tell them to. They're not going to do things out of compliance. And so I really feel like regardless of what administrative position you're in, you have to adopt the belief statement, I'm in charge but I'm not in control, and allow for other people to take more control over what the change looks like, the where the path goes. And even when you know there are there are better ideas, but we're going to pursue an okay idea to see what learning comes from it. Um, I have an actual example of what that looks like. Our leadership team wanted to shift the learning. They wanted kids to become less dependent on the teacher. It came from a, a reading of culturally responsive teaching in the brain. But the way we went about doing it was not at all how we're going to help kids become less dependent on the teacher because it was totally focused on the teacher and not at all focused on the kid. And we learned a lot from doing it a really bad way to the degree that I'm so much more excited about the work of our instructional leadership team next year around some of the, the ideas from the listening leader because we're not solely focused on the teacher anymore. We're actually trying to understand from the perspective of a student what it is that they might need to become less dependent on us for their success. For teachers, I really feel like the biggest thing, um, and I, I think this is true of superintendents for principals too, their input matters so much more than we have given them credit for. They have to feel trusted, they have to feel heard, they have to feel like they have choice and voice in the changes that we are making. And when we admit that we are in charge but not in control, we're much more likely to take the time that's necessary for teachers to feel heard and to guide some of the changes that are actually taking place. The other thing I think, you know, from a building and district perspective when it comes to complex change, we do need to slow down. We do need to recognize, is this solution technical? Are we just squeezing the tube of toothpaste in the middle? We do that a lot in education. We'll move, we'll change a teacher's assignment when she's ineffective in the classroom. We'll change it, we'll move a teacher to a different building when they're ineffective in a school. That's a technical change that's not getting at any of the actual complex problems. I think I love the quote from this book. If I have 60 minutes to solve a problem, I'm going to spend 55 minutes thinking about the problem and five minutes generating a solution. But I think the opposite is actually true. We rush to apply solutions to complex problems and spend more time thinking about the solution than we do analyzing and truly understanding the problem from the perspective of the students or families that are most impacted by it. It's operating with empathy and taking the time that's needed in order for us to do that. That's where, from an administrative level, superintendent on down, we are going to get much more bang for our buck by taking the time that's necessary to truly understand the problem through the eyes of the people that are most impacted by it. Over and over, you talk about being a listening leader. It's a key component and a theme in your operations. You use it when you talk about change. It's prominent in your dealing with problems. 
What's the framework that you use in maintaining your listening focus? I love the idea of SCARF for social interactions. Here's, here's my thing as a leader. I'm so action-oriented. I, I sacrifice affection to, to, for, for action, right? I value action over affection. I can't do that and be a listening leader. That's, that's in, in essence, what a driver is. I... I I don't embrace every opportunity that I have to allow someone to be heard. Saphir talks about bids, right? It's either a bid to build trust or betray. It's either a, a build to help people feel safe or to, you know, have people continue to feel uncertain. Scarf, um, that if you look at every situation that you have with with um, someone you're working with as a leader and you're uncertain as to where they're coming from. SCARF is a framework. Is it concern about their status? A lot of people, because schools are so hierarchical, are concerned or coming at a situation with some concern about their status in this scenario. Think about a teacher that teaches electives and we're adding something new. My status is being threatened there. Are we operating with that lens to understand that that's their perspective? The C is certainty, right? I feel like we do not do a good enough job from superintendent on down of creating clarity for the changes that we're making such that people are not threatened by a lack of certainty. If someone's coming to you and really what you're finding out that they're saying is, I don't have certainty for what we're doing, you can create a lot of safety by just clarifying for them what it is, right? They're maybe not even pushing back, but I think oftentimes we look at that as, you're just pushing back, you don't wanna do this change, you're afraid of change. They just don't have the kind of certainty that's, that's needed, right? There's autonomy, there's relational capacity, there's fairness. All of those lenses are ways that we can start to re or remain curious to the degree that we can start to understand what is the threat that we need to be able to alleviate for this person in order to, to better embrace the changes that we're making. If you follow that pattern, it usually brings you to a, a type of interaction with someone where they are going to leave having felt heard. Asking questions and asking the right questions play a huge role in being a listening leader. A lot of times you're in a leadership position because you've had the answers, because you've demonstrated an ability to, to come up with answers or to think on your feet to respond in situations where you, you create trust that you know what you're doing. And vulnerability actually matters a lot more. And when we are curious and ask a lot of questions, to some degree, that is demonstrative of a willingness to be humble and act with vulnerability because we don't know all the answers. And there isn't a leader on earth that has all of the answers. They come through inquiry and dialogue. That's where we're gonna start generating, I think, better ideas and a better understanding of what is what the problems are so that we we can in collaboration with others generate better solutions the right questions play a key role in hiring the right people but the important part is to know what to listen for when interviewing well first what I didn't realize when I started hiring people is I had I had no idea what I was actually looking for 
we think all the time about what the best questions to answer and not about what we actually are looking for in a response. If you go into interview someone and you don't have key look force for the questions that you're asking, you're not going to be certain about the person that you're hiring. I really believe that. I do think best questions we ask people are they start with asking them about what a colleague might say, right? It's, it's taking the onus off of them to, sh- you know, if you ask someone, what's your weakness? All, that's, a, that's a really difficult question for someone to answer and be vulnerable in a situation where they're trying to, to impress. impress you enough that they earn a job. But instead, if you ask them, what would your colleagues change about you if they could? You're going to get an honest answer because they probably are aware of what their colleagues might change. I know I am. And if they're not aware of what their colleagues might change about them if they could, they're probably not the kind of humble person that you're looking to bring in to lead the learning of kids or to be a leader in your building. Humility is a characteristic that you have to tease out of interview questions. They have to be able to speak to um, instances where they've made mistakes. And if they can't, that is a red flag. So are you recommending that the interview team gets together and kind of would collaborate on what the look for's are? Absolutely. And I would not bring them together and say, here are the look for for these questions. And again, this takes time, but they are going to commit to this process and commit to what is among the most important things we do, which is hiring, more if they have input into what we are looking for when we ask this question. Do you do that? Absolutely, I do that. You know, a lot of what I actually do now is I bring the math experts in, they generate some questions that are specific to their content, and they collaboratively generate the key look force. I am more interviewing for the qualities and characteristics that I know will fit the culture in the building, which is hungry, humble, smart. And so math deals with math. I deal with the side of things that I know are going to be a good fit for the culture. And then we come together and we compare scores. It's really simple if you have key look force to just plus the questions where they hit the look for. And if you have 10 questions and they hit six or seven key look force, that then tells me they were on the same page with the teachers. And then I have my own scores that I can compare to as well. And it, it, it has worked out very well in that way. There have been a lot of changes in your building. How do you prevent teacher burnout? As we continue to hire people that are a good fit for that, you start to see a different level of energy that they bring to the job, and that is contagious. I have a wing in this building. We call it our STEAM wing. It is comprised of both new and veteran teachers in the building, right, who have been here and some who are brand new here. The way that they have meshed, because they are all driven by the same purpose, to be a spark, right? They want to introduce kids to something that they didn't otherwise know about that will become a spark for them down the road. Things like engineering, things like coding, things like art and design, maybe orchestra, right? We have some phenomenal orchestra teachers that are a major spark for kids. For me, it doesn't matter what they leave here feeling excited about as long as they leave here feeling excited about themselves as a learner and realizing there is some subject matter that I can be a rock star in, right? So that that has coalesced because of who we've brought in and because of the purpose that we've established. This idea of be the spark. 
One of the things I think superintendents can really help their principals with, if you can't explain why you exist in the time it takes to get on and off an elevator, you don't have the kind of language you need for teachers. You you aren't able to articulate it quickly and efficiently enough that teachers will use that language as well. Be the Spark for us was the easiest way of communicating what we're trying to accomplish here, why we get out of bed each day and come to work. We need to ignite some passion in our students. Pretty simple. We had to sit down and really develop the kind of language that we wanted. I love it when I hear teachers say be the spark. I love it that my teachers use that hashtag on Twitter. Does your school have a common hashtag? Does your district? Is that hashtag representative of who you want to be as a building? It seems silly. It's just a hashtag. But it is the easiest way to frame up who we are and why we exist. And the more you get teachers to speak that same language, the more everyone's arrows are moving in the same direction. And that's really what we want. So whether we have this nice, long narrative and mission statement, or we boil it down to a hashtag, I feel like there's greater clarity for what it is that we're asking teachers to do every day. Learning has been different for the students in your building at Chippewa Middle School. When the students go to high school, what will it be like for them? Is the high school changing too? We developed a STEAM framework. Uh, I worked pretty closely with curriculum and instruction and then a couple specific um, science and STEAM coaches around what a a district-wide framework with fixed and flexed parameters look like. There are certain things that are fixed. All of us are focusing on the 12 habits of mind. The way in which we incorporate those into learning can be flexed and different at each school. But that's one piece that becomes a part of how the high school needs to understand the experience of kids coming to them. These are how the 12 habits of mind are being taught, for example, right? Um, But this framework has been now used as a way of introducing to the next level, high school, what the experience of kids is like, and they then need to incorporate for themselves what learning should look like in classrooms. We are far away at the high school level, and I think this is true in many cases, from giving students the kind of choice and autonomy as learners that will engage them in significant ways. We still dictate so much of the terms because we've got concern over GPA, we've got concern over AP testing, and concern over covering all of the content. All of those things in my mind are barriers that need to be addressed. Those are part of the complex changes that we need to be considering as we look at what should be different for student learning at a high school level moving into college. What could happen at the high school level and how would you make this happen? The biggest key is we actually sit down and ask questions about how things could be different. This is what I mean about speaking possibility. It starts with inquiry and we don't need to have the answers. We need to have the questions and to take time to actually thoughtfully elicit from teachers how things could be different. What would happen if we taught AP US history through a problem-based lens? I think the amount of engagement, the purposeful reading would significantly change for kids. Have you seen any changes in your data of students either in more engagement, fewer discipline referrals, better attendance? We have um, a lot of observations that suggest 
kids are more engaged. We have um, interactions with students. We do a lot of um, surveys on connectedness, and we do a lot of uh, our deans sitting down with kids and just asking questions about their experience. The answer is absolutely. There are a number of examples and actual artifacts, student work uploaded to student portfolios that demonstrate a high level of cognitive complexity and engagement from students you would expect and from students that you would not expect. What's interesting is it's not yet translated in the satellite data. It's not yet there um, showing that there are a greater percentage of students of color or students living in poverty achieving grade level standards on MCA or meeting individual growth goals on math. We still have a major gap when it comes to students of color in math. We are embedding a year more of math through coding. We've not yet seen the satellite data, but we have seen an increased interest, a spark for students that I don't think teachers would have predicted. Coding would be the spark. So what is it the 21st century leaders need to know and do? So they've got to be in tune with who they are as a learner. And they've got to be in tune also with who they are as a cultural being. I think that's critical. We are so unbelievably privileged to not ever have to think about who we are as a cultural being that we miss so many opportunities to gain empathy for how people experience life different from us. And I say us being, I'm a white male. I understand the inherent privilege that comes with being a white male. And it motivates me to want to understand how others are experiencing life different from me. And it's a significant challenge and commitment that I have to engage in as a leader because I just have only experienced life one way. It's hard to step out of my own experience and make the kind of decisions that are going to have an impact on people's lives that are entirely different from my own. But at least I recognize that, even though I don't know how to navigate it. Um, you know, I'm really big into technology. Right. I read about it constantly. I think part of what a 21st century leader needs in order to speak possibility is to be very aware of where technology is going. How much do you know about artificial intelligence? How will that change the game for future careers? If we aren't exploring that, we're not going to provide the kinds of examples or the kinds of experiences pair kids for any situation they might experience after high school or after whatever their post-secondary option was. I pay very close attention to anything related to technology, and it's not hard based on the access we now have just in our pocket. But I think, it's, I think that's a critical component. We have to understand the future in order to create experiences in the present that will prepare students for basically anything. Because you cannot predict where artificial intelligence is going to bring us in, in 20 years. Rob is an enthusiastic leader who, like most of us, believe in the power and beauty of public education. He describes himself as a listening, learning leader. He and his staff have created a school that champion each learner to be what they can be. To close, today Dr. Seuss is on summer vacation, so we will have final words from Rob. I really believe every kid and parent that enters our schools ought to feel welcome and that they have a voice. And I don't think we're going to have a we're going to have real transformation in our schools until we are listening to how they experience learning in our classrooms. 
This is Jane Sigford signing off. My email is jlsigford at comcast.net. Thank you for listening.